to the 6th chapter of John. John chapter 6. <clears throat> Specialists in uh, comparative religions tell us that there are literally thousands of religions in the world. Many of them have been studied, probably most of them have, analyzed carefully and, and uh, researched well. And yet, we should recognize that there are, from a biblical standpoint, really only two religions. There is Christianity, and there is everything else in the world, because Christianity is unique. Now, if that sounds intolerant and audacious, wait until you hear what Jesus has to say. Because I'm simply saying again what, what he is saying to us in the sixth chapter of John. Let's begin reading with verse 22, where we have the setting for the discourse that follows. Uh, if you recall from, from last week, Jesus fed the 5,000, or more properly, properly fed 10 to 15,000 people. There were 5,000 men and uh, apparently a number of women and children that were fed at the same time. He then sent the disciples away uh, across the Sea of Galilee, dismissed the crowd, went into the mountains to pray, and then later in the, in the evening joined the disciples in the midst of the sea, walked across the uh, tops of the waves and was received into the boat, and the disciples then found themselves at Capernaum. The setting for the discourse that follows begins in verse uh, 22 when the, when the crowd that he had fed the night before awakened and began looking for Jesus and for breakfast. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake, that is, in the northeast corner up by Bethsaida, realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. But some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? You can see their reasoning. They awakened in the morning and they were ready, ready to eat. After all, they lined up and uh, he fed them the night before. So they queued up again and they're, they're, they're ready for breakfast. And Jesus didn't show so they're a little bit miffed. They started looking around and uh, couldn't find him. The rumor began to spread that he'd gone back across the Sea of, of Galilee to Capernaum, and so they chartered or commandeered some of the little boats that had been swept across the lake in the storm, and they rowed across to Capernaum, where they found him in the, uh, in the synagogue in Capernaum, as we're told later. And they raised this question, when did you get here? Which is really not the question in their mind, as his answer indicates. Their question is not, when did you get here, but... Why did you come over here and leave us over there without breakfast? Jesus' answer is uh, really the answer to the unasked question. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him... God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now, I'd like to make two observations about Jesus' answer. The first is that he clearly points out that there are two kinds of bread in the world. There's bread that satisfies and there's bread that does not satisfy. They ate their fill 
as Jesus puts it, of the bread that he dispensed the day before. And they were already hungry. They were looking for something else to eat. Because you shouldn't be spending your time and your energy on food that doesn't last. But spend it on something that lasts. Some things are passing. Some things are permanent. Invest your life in things that are permanent. That's what he's saying. Now, those are good words. They were good words for Jesus' day, and they're good words for ours today because we all have a penchant for uh, spending our time on things that just don't last. They don't matter. They don't have any permanent value, and they don't satisfy. We've all gone down that route. Carolyn was talking to a young man on the airplane a couple of weeks ago. We were flying to Colorado Springs and discovered he was a contractor working out of Colorado Springs. He had one ambition in life. This was the one thing on his mind. He wanted to buy a Porsche. That was his goal in life. He was saving all of his money so he could buy a Porsche. Now, uh, I've never had a Porsche, but I, I have a lot of friends that have had them, and they're nice for a while, but I know what happens. A few months later, you want to buy a little quicker car. Or you save your money to buy a condominium at McCall, and it's nice for a while, but it wears pretty thin after a couple of seasons. Then you want a condo in, in Sun Valley. That's just the way life is. And unfortunately, we spend an inordinate amount of time purchasing things, and we spend an awful lot of energy working for things that, that, that just don't last. They're, they're passing. They're temporal. Jesus says, don't waste your time. Working for things that don't last. Work for the food that endures, which I will give you. You see that? He, he, what an audacious statement. Says, you want something that lasts, come to me, and I'll give it to you. And because that would raise questions in people's minds, he adds, on him, God the Father has set his seal. In other words, the Father has authenticated the Son to give the food that lasts. He's the only person in the world that has food that endures and will give you eternal life. Do you see that? You have to read the text very carefully. The Father has authenticated the Son of Man. That's his word, his title, as you know, for himself. The Father has authenticated the Son of Man, Jesus, to give the bread that endures to eternal life. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Sun Myung Moon. Not Joseph Smith, but Jesus. Pretty audacious, but I'm simply telling you what Jesus said. If you want to know where to go to get bread that will satisfy you forever, Jesus says you have to come to me. It's the only place you can get that kind of bread. And there's a, an added note here that we need to keep in mind. He says he wants to give it. You don't have to buy it from him. He wants to give it. Now, uh, this raised uh, the question that follows in their mind. By the way, I've been calling this a discourse, but, but in fact, it's more of a, of a uh, 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 discussion, questions and answers. They raise questions, he answers. He raises questions, they answer. And uh, when he talks about buying food that lasts, they, they realize he's talking about more than, than uh, food that you buy at the store. He's talking about some kind of spiritual food, something that God provides and that raises the question they ask, what must we do to do the works that God requires? I like the way the, the New American Standard translates that passage because it, it reinforces the question. What shall we do to work the works of God? They put the emphasis on the idea that it's something they should labor for. And in fact, 
They're saying what we say all the time. What good work should I do to please God? How, how can I do the works of God in the world? What can I do what God requires? How can I please God? What work can I do? And Jesus answers with this crystal clear answer. This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. Now, he puts it indirectly, but there's no question about what he means or who he means because that phrase, the one he sent, is his word or his, his phrase for himself. He's the one whom the Father sent from heaven. So if you want to get the bread that endures, it lasts, it satisfies, it gives you eternal life, you have to come to Jesus, and the way you get it is by believing on him. The, the verb is present tense. Keep on believing. Now, they, they, they raise the question that we would probably ask at this point. Jesus is saying there's only one place to get this bread, and it's right here. I'm, I'm the source of the bread. And uh, you have to trust me. If you want to have eternal life, you have to come to me. You have to believe on me. Then you say, okay, what uh, miraculous sign then will you give us that we may uh, see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Their question is a good one. Authenticate yourself. It's not enough for you to, to merely say uh, that you're the bread of life. Give us a sign. Give us something that will make it easier for us to believe. Now, it was easy to believe in Moses. Now, now there was a man you could trust. Moses fed us manna from heaven. For 40 years, he fed two and a half million people. Three days, uh, three meals a day. Now, there's a man for you. If you want a man, you can trust him. There's Moses. Now, it's ironic when you think about it that just the day before, Jesus had fed the 5,000. But they had completely dismissed this sign. They were looking for something far greater. Big deal, they were saying. You fed us one day. Moses fed us for 40 years. Now, Jesus, in his response to them, tells them that they're wrong. They're wrong, as a matter of fact, on two counts. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. No, he says you've misread the, the Old Testament. The quotation that they give. He gave you bread from heaven. does not refer to Moses. It was not Moses who sent the bread. It was my Father who sent you the bread. Moses was simply the intermediary. And furthermore, the bread that came down from heaven in the wilderness was intended to be a symbol. It was a sign of some greater reality. And he says, I am the reality. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. You remember the story in the Old Testament of the miraculous uh, feeding of the multitude, the two and a half million that came out of Egypt? These stories are not too familiar uh, to us, but they, they were to the Jews of Jesus' day. They, they had these stories in the back of their minds. We need to be reminded. Israel came out of the wilderness. They began to complain because they had no bread, so God rained manna on them. The, the name that they gave for the bread, manna, is actually a, a question. When they saw it, you know, they, they woke up in the morning and they saw these little pieces of, little particles of white food, some substance all over the bushes. And they said, man who? It's a Hebrew for, what is it? And that became the name for manna throughout the 40 years that God fed them. 
What's it, they called it. What is this stuff? And uh, every morning they woke up in the, and they gathered just enough for that day. They couldn't carry any over, except on uh, the day before the Sabbath. They were permitted to gather twice as much on, on Friday before the Sabbath. And that sustained them through the Sabbath so that they didn't have to gather any, any food. But every other morning they went out and gathered just enough for that day. And everyone had an adequate supply of, of manna. Now, Jesus says these stories in the Old Testament were really symbols of a greater reality to come. And he says, Moses gave you bread, or he was the intermediary through whom God gave bread in the wilderness. But I am the reality of which the manna is a sign. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they say, from now on, give us this bread. Now, I don't know whether this was an authentic request or whether they're being facetious. There's no way to know their hearts. But uh, you and I do know that, that down inside the human heart, there is a, there's a craving, there's a longing for something more than, than the bread that satisfies in this life. And apparently there were some that, that felt that longing. Jesus says he's the one to give them bread. They say, Lord, give us this bread. Give it to us. And Jesus tells them then how you receive the bread from heaven. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Literally what Jesus says is that if you come to him and believe in him, you will never, never, by any means whatever, go hungry. He uses a double negative in both cases where he says you'll never hunger and you'll never thirst. Now, it's not, it's not good grammar in English to use a double negative. We don't generally say I don't never do so and so. That's, that's improper. But uh, it's perfectly proper in Greek if you want to reinforce the negative. And that's what Jesus is doing. This is an unequivocal promise. If you come to Jesus and believe in him, then that longing inside will be satisfied. Now, we think it's satisfied by acquiring more money or a better home or a better car or better furniture or more clothing or a better position in life, more prestige, more power, more influence, uh, a better retirement plan. We keep working for these things because we think they're going to satisfy but they never satisfy. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? What you've been looking for all your life is what he supplies. If we come to him and believe in him, we will never, under any circumstances at all, ever hunger or thirst again. That itch inside that we can't quite scratch will be taken care of. Now, what follows, I believe, is an elaboration on this idea of, of, it, uh, of our never being hungry or thirsty again. Now, let, let me read beginning with verse 36. But as I told you, you have seen me and you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never by any means, same double negative again, drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. And I explains what that will is. 
that I lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks or gazes intently at the Son, who contemplates him and believes in him, shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. There are two things I want you to note here. The first is that he will not turn anyone away who comes. Do you see that? No one is too far gone. No one is too far out. No one has out sinned the goodness of God. No one is so far gone that they cannot receive God's grace. Whoever you are, regardless of what you've done, Jesus says it's the Father's will that you come, and if you come, I will never turn you away. I occasionally have people come in and tell me that they think they have committed the unpardonable sin. And uh, my first question is always, well, what, what is the unpardonable sin? They say, well, I've committed adultery. Or uh, I have an abortion in my past. And I, I just don't think that, that the Lord could ever forgive me for that sin. And I point out to them that the Scriptures do talk about an unpardonable sin, but it's the, it's the sin of rejecting the witness which the Holy Spirit has given to Christ. Jesus talked about an unforgivable sin. But the unforgivable sin is not any specific sins that you may commit. It's the one big sin of rejecting the witness to Christ. And the reason God cannot forgive that sin is because that's the only way sin can be forgiven. The only way is through the death of Christ. And if we reject that, there is no other alternative. So in that sense, it's an unpardonable sin. But there is no sin which a Christian can commit or which a non-Christian commits other than rejecting Christ that, that makes it impossible for you to come to Christ or makes it necessary for him to reject you. Anyone can come. You see that? Uh, I have a, 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 had a good friend when I was growing up. His name is John Richardson. His uh, wife is named Edith. Edith Richardson. And a group of us were talking one day about how we became Christians, and she was telling us about her experience. As a small child, she became convinced, she was very sensitive to sin, and she became convinced that, that she was so sinful, God could never receive her. And she was in a church where very often they had altar calls, and the pastor would preach the gospel and call for people to come down and receive Christ, and she could never come forward because she always felt that she was too sinful. One day he was preaching on a section from Matthew where Jesus says of the Pharisees, or quotes the Pharisees who said of Jesus, this man receives sinners and eats with them, except he quoted it out of the King James. Now, if you remember what the authorized version, the way the authorized version translates that passage, it goes this way, this man receives sinners and eateth with them, E-A-T-H-E-T-H. And uh, she heard that. Jesus receives sinners and eateth with them. And she popped out of her chair and came down to the front. Now, the Lord wants you to know that. He receives sinners and John with them, and Mabel, and Sue, and Carolyn, and David, and Matthew, or whatever your name is. Jesus receives sinners. That's the kind of Lord we have. Now, that's the first thing he wants you to know. Anyone can count. 
The second thing he wants you to know from this passage is that when you come, he'll never lose you. Did, did you. did you listen when I read those words? This is the will of Him who sent me. This is the Father's will. And so this becomes the Son's will. That I shall lose none of all that He has given me. How many will He lose? How many will lose their salvation? How many will sin some great sin and fall out of God's good graces and lose it all? None. And we have that on Jesus' authority and the authority of the apostles. Now, the Bible does talk about certain people who fall away, but, but these are people who are only nominally Christian and not vitally so. Once you have believed on Jesus and your heart has been changed, you're never going to get lost because your salvation depends then upon the Father. As Peter puts it, we are saved through faith unto salvation. He guards your faith. I have people come in sometimes and say to me, you know, I, I just, uh, I, I just, I have attacks upon my faith. I, I don't believe it anymore. I'm, I'm struggling with it. I, I must have lost my salvation. I say, no, listen, the very fact that you're struggling indicates that you belong to the Lord. If you could turn around and walk away from Him without any regret, without any remorse, without any sin, with this total indifference to God, then I would say, well, chances are you never were a Christian. But the very fact that it's your concern indicates that you belong to Him. And those feelings about your faith do not indicate a failure of faith, but are merely a tax upon your faith. God's not going to lose you. He knows where you are. He knows you by name. You're not going to get lost because He's holding on to you. Theologians talk a lot about the perseverance of the saints, and it's a good term. I like that term. Those who belong to Him, those who have been truly regenerated, will persevere to the end. But you see, the Lord sees to it that you persevere. It's His responsibility to hold you faithful to the Word. And uh, failures don't matter because there's forgiveness and restoration. And we can go on and walk with Him because He's holding on to you. I have a, a friend who's on the staff at Peninsula Bible Church. His name is Paul Winslow. And he's one of these go-for-broke guys always pushing himself beyond limits. And I was out hiking with him one day. He had one of his boys, uh, Troy, with him. And uh, he came to this log, a little narrow log across the stream. It was about a 15-foot drop into this uh, stream. And, and Paul says, let's go across the log. And, of course, I wasn't going to chicken out on a deal like that. But uh, I wasn't really that excited about the idea. So I said, well, you, uh, you go ahead first. So he takes his little boy and puts his little boy on the log, and, and they start across. And Troy says, I can't do that. And his dad says, it's all right, I got you. And he says, no, I can't hold on to you. And Paul said, you don't have to hang on to me. I'm going to hang on to you. Now, Troy hang, hung on for dear life. His little knuckles were white all the way across that log. But it wasn't his grip on Paul that made the difference. It was Paul's grip on his boy. And that's what the Lord wants you to know. You're not going to be lost. You see that? It is the Father's will that I should lose none of all that He's given me, but raise them up at the last day. That means if you put your faith in Christ, really put your faith in Christ, then you're going to see the resurrection. It's a sure thing. You're not going to miss out. You won't lose out. Now, uh, 
At this, we're told the Jews began to grumble. This is a group within the multitude. There are actually four groups envisioned here. There's the larger multitude, and there, there are Jews within that multitude who are probably synagogue officials, and then there are disciples we'll talk about in a moment, and then finally the twelve, the apostles, for whom Peter is the, is the uh, spokesman. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can they now say, I, I came down from, from heaven? Now, as we're going to see, these Jews have two questions. One has to do with his miraculous origin. The, the other has to do with his utterance. They never understood his origin. They never understood the virgin birth. That was a mystery to them from the very beginning. They always thought he was illegitimate because they knew that you know, Nazareth's a small town, and you know how gossip spreads in a small town. Everybody knew that Mary was pregnant before she was married, and so they just assumed that Jesus was born out of wedlock. As a matter of fact, in one of the arguments, that they were, the debates that they were having, they were vested in the argument, and as people will often do when they're on the short end of an argument, they attack the person instead of dealing with the facts. And they said, well, at least we're not born of fornication. The implication being, you are. They didn't understand. And they never would understand. Because this is the sort of thing that only makes any sense at all to the eyes of faith. And so Jesus doesn't explain it to them. He skirts around the question to go to the heart of the issue. In effect, he says, even if I explained it to you, you wouldn't believe it. Because you don't have a heart to listen. Now let me read. Stop grumbling, Jesus said. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. Everyone who listens to the Father will come to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes in me has everlasting life. If you'd listen to the Father, he said, you would listen to me. Now I want you to listen to me. I'm the bread of life that's come down from heaven to give you everlasting life. Your fathers ate the manna in the desert, yet, yet they died. But here is the bread that came down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If a man eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, I don't, have take to, I don't have time to elaborate on this paragraph. I just want to say one thing. If you believe the Father, you will come to the Son. And the Son will teach you about himself. That's the argument of this paragraph in a nutshell. I have people who tell me, oh, I worship God. I'm a God-fearing man, but I don't want any of this stuff about Jesus. That didn't fit. I just, I just love God. That's all. That can't be. That can't be. If you love God and you're subject to Him, then you'll listen to Him and He'll tell you about Jesus and you'll go to Jesus and He'll tell you about Himself. John elaborates on this, uh, this same principle in, in 1 John 2 and 1 John 5. I just commend it to you for your own study. He says it's not having this nonsense about believing in the Father and not believing in the Son. If you don't believe in the Son, you don't have the Father. And that's what Jesus is saying. He, he, I, he said, I would tell you about the virgin birth if I thought you'd listen. But you won't listen to the Father, so you won't listen to me. So he doesn't even try to tell them. But he does leave with them this statement which causes them to choke a bit. 
My bread is flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And that raises another question in their mind. This is their second response. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's that utterance that caused them to stumble. How gross, they were saying. Here he is talking about giving us his flesh to eat. What is this? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. For the living Father sent me, and, and I, for just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. That is, this one, I, am the bread that came down from heaven. Our forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread, that is, on my flesh, will live forever. Because he has said earlier, in the paragraph that precedes in verse 51, that this bread is my flesh, which I, I shall give for the life of the world. So he says, if you want to live forever, you have to eat this flesh. And they didn't understand. They thought the whole thing was disgusting. But you see, it's an indication of how spiritually obtuse they were. Because this is a perfectly good analogy. The Jews talked about eating and drinking the law. They understood that principle. That, that phrase occurs in the Talmud. Now Jesus is saying, eat and drink of me. Now let, let me give you an example. This is the sort of, it, this analogy makes so much sense when you, when you understand what Jesus is saying. This morning I had, uh, uh, bacon and eggs. I, I ate another body. I took it into my body. And uh, it gives life to me. The bacon and eggs that I ate this morning will become David Roper tomorrow, tomorrow morning. I assimilated something eaten into my life. And it gave me life. That's all Jesus is saying. You eat of me. And I come into your life. You assimilate me into your life. And I become a part of you. As Jesus put it later in the upper room. The secret of Christian living is I in you and you in me. See, that vital union. It's not trying harder. It's not trying to pump yourself up so that you have more fervor or zeal for God. It's eating and drinking of Christ. Now, to make it even more clear, earlier in the discussion, Jesus had given them the key to the metaphor. He wasn't trying to be obscure. He is crystal clear. In verse 35, he gives them the key, which if they had applied to the analogy, they would have understood immediately. Verse 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, what is it that takes away your hunger? Well, it's eating. What is it that takes away your thirst? It's drinking. So, in effect, Jesus is saying, if you want your hunger to, to be satisfied, your thirst to swage, come and believe. Eat and drink. Come and believe. That's how you become a Christian in the first place. You hear the Gospel. And you come to Jesus. And you believe it. 
and he satisfies you with eternal life. And every day is like that. Every day is a new beginning. You roll out of the sack in the morning and and you think about all the dreadful things that could happen to you through the day, the mischief your kids are going to make and the health problems that you have and the dreary business situation that you're in and the marital problems that you're facing. And, of course, not everybody has life like that, but some of you do. Hard things along the way as well as a lot of joys. And the first thing you do is eat and drink of Christ. You come and you believe. You remind yourself that he's your source of life. You see? And he satisfies He's satisfied. There's this unequivocal promise. He gives you that deep down sense of satisfaction that nothing else will give. There's a commercial on uh, fishing the Northwest that I've only seen once. I just laughed right out loud when I saw it. This fellow from Oklahoma is talking about, he's describing some catfish uh, bait, some kind of spray you put on your catfish bait. And he says, it will throw a craven on them. And... Uh, Strikes me that that's, that's what happens to us all the time. We, we have a craving thrown on us. We long for something. We, we, we hunger and thirst for something. And we think that, that, uh, that something else will satisfy it. A little more money, a little more prestige, whatever it may be. But it, it's Jesus you're looking for. And if you come and believe in Him, He'll satisfy you. Now, uh, Verse 60 tells us that upon hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Uh, it was hard not because it was hard to understand, but hard to accept. Aware that his disciples were grumbling. Now notice, Howard Hendricks said the other day he was convinced that when Satan fell, he fell into their sound system. <laughs> always happens at the most inopportune time. Uh, you have the larger body of, of uh, the crowd, and then you have the, the Jews within the crowd, and then you have the disciples, Jesus' disciples, who were offended at what he was saying. Not by the analogy, because they'd been around Jesus long enough to know that he was always saying things that upset them. This is something entirely different. Jesus said, does this offend you? What if you, you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? In other words, if I said this in my ascended state, in my glorified form, would you believe me then? The Spirit gives life. The flesh, that is human activity, counts for nothing. And that's what offended him. It wasn't the analogy, is that it's that he swept aside human activity. You cannot save yourself. And that's when they turned and uh, walked away from him. Now, bear in mind, these are the people that 24 hours before wanted to make a king out of him. And now they turn their back and walk away because they saw clearly what the issue was. We cannot save ourselves. And that cuts right across everything that, that we believe in. We want to be able to strut around heaven with our thumbs behind our suspenders and say, we did it. We got ourselves here. We contributed to the process in some way. We, we, don't, we don't like to hear that, that the only way I can be saved is to come to Jesus. Don't I have to crawl on my knees to Cuernavaca? Don't I have to, don't I have to atone some way for my sins? No, just come to Jesus. He's already atoned. He's already paid the price. Don't I have to make up a list of the ten most difficult things in the world that, to do and things that I don't want to do and do them and then Jesus will... No. 
Don't I have to clean myself up a little bit, a little more spit and polish, look a little better? No. No, just just come and believe. You know, uh, for the last two weeks, I've had people coming to me and asking me questions about baptism because apparently someone is going through our congregation inviting people to a Bible study in which they are taught that baptism is necessary for salvation. Do you know what that is? That's uh, our tendency to say, well, if I can't pick up the tab, if I can't pay the bill, at least I'll pay the tip. That's wanting to contribute some little something to my salvation. Oh yeah, I have to believe, but then I have to be baptized. That's my part. And you see, it, how, do you, how do you work the works of God? By believing. You just come to Jesus and receive it. You can't work for it. doesn't do any good to be baptized, to be circumcised, to be Simonized. doesn't make any difference what you do. You and I are lost apart from the work of Jesus Christ. This is the work of God that you come and believe. Now, you see, that, that takes away all human effort. And that's offensive to us. And a lot of people won't buy that. And they walk away from it, uh, just as these did. Now, Jesus turns to the disciples, or to the apostles, to the twelve. And he says to them, You do not want to leave too, do you? It's a good translation because the, the way the question is put, it assumes a, 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 a negative answer. No. Simon Peter answered. He's the spokesman for the apostles. You'll notice he uses we all the way through. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. Now you have to see this. This is another of Peter's great confessions. And you have to see this against the backdrop of Jesus' waning popularity. People were leaving in, in mass. Uh, he was no longer popular. Everything is downhill for Jesus to the cross from this point on in terms of public appeal and acclaim. They didn't like him anymore. They walked away from him. And uh, this was not only true of the Jews who had harassed him, the official Jews who had harassed him, but the Jews who were disciples of his. And now only the twelve are, are left. And, and Peter says, well, this is all imperfectly understood to us. We're, we're not real clear, but we have believed. And we have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. I like, that's the order of things. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. First you believe. You put your trust in Him. And then you come to know Him. And uh, Peter says, we've done that. And it, we've burned our bridges. There just isn't anyone else that we can turn to. No one else has the words of eternal life. Not Muhammad. Not the Buddha. Not Confucius. Not Joseph Smith. Not Sun Myung Moon, not Richard Verwill. No one else has the words of life. Only Jesus. And if we want to live eternally, we need to come to Him. You say, my, it's awfully intolerant. But I'm simply saying again what Jesus said. Now let me say a couple of things. The, the Lord ends this uh, debate, this discussion, by reminding the apostles that even in that group of twelve, there was one who didn't have the real thing. There was Judas. He looked very, very good. From the outside, uh, not even the apostles could, could know his heart. But Judas knew. He knew that he had never submitted himself to Christ.
And uh, that's always true. These, these little reminders are there to cause us to examine ourselves, as Paul looks at, uh, as Paul says it. To see if we're in the faith. Has there ever been a time that we've come to Jesus and believed in Him, put our trust in Him? If we are, if we have, we're, we're secure. If we've never done that, even though we're churchgoers and we're on church committees and we're involved up to our ears in church activity, then it may be that we're only nominally Christian like Judas and we're not vitally Christian. And we're really not on the inside. So we need to examine ourselves and make that step of commitment if we never have. Now, the second thing I would like to say is that this is the gospel we're to proclaim. We shouldn't complicate it with a lot of, uh, a lot of baggage. Our Lord just unpacked the whole thing for us, and he said, here's the message. Come to Jesus and believe in him. It doesn't take a lot of theological knowledge to share the gospel when it's that simple. There are people out there with a craving. They've got a hunger for something. They don't know what it is. It's our Lord. We need to tell them. A silent Christian is a contradiction in terms. If we're Christians, if we really belong to Christ, then we need to declare it to people gently and lovingly. And there are a great deal of tolerance and patience. We shouldn't be harsh and, and strident and ugly with people about it. But we need to let them know that this is the way. And secondly, I would say if there are people here who have never taken that step, our Lord wants you to know that you can come and believe in Him and you can walk out of here possessing eternal life. This is the message that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in the Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. You want to have life? Then you have to have the Son. And He's there available to you, just as I would offer a piece of bread. He offers His life. He says, come and eat and drink of me, and you'll have life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for this very simple explanation of the way to become a, a believer. We know that it's not your will that any should perish. And uh, you have in so many ways, through illustration and through story and through discourse, made it crystal clear. We know what the issue is. We need to come to you and receive life. And uh, we know that the alternative uh, to in rejecting you is to have no life. And though that offends us, Lord, we, we want to come to you and believe in you, put our trust in you, and ask you to save us. Thank you that uh, we have that promise that those who come to him, he will, he will never cast out. Lord, thank you for giving yourself, your flesh, for the world, for the life of the world. Thank you that we can participate in it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.